Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Kill son vole, PA. Hello, Johnny. Hello, my love. Hello, everyone. So things are getting really busy around here, you know it. Yes, we have had one heck of a crazy week. Yeah. Way back, we put a variety of things out there like podcasting, speaking, photography, graphic design, acting. <laughs> and it was sort of like casting our bread or giving a portion to seven or eight. Do you know what verses I'm talking about? Is it Proverbs? No, it's Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I would get that wrong. Same author, different book. Okay. So tell me, <laughs> what verse are we talking about? Well, it's Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 4. It says, cast your bread on the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. And this is the part here that you and I struggled with over the past four years. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Yeah. I mean, we've been observing the clouds and the winds. Right. <laughs> but we try to keep them in our peripheral and keep going. Right. And it's, I, I have to admit I have gotten downtrodden at mm -hmm. various places because we've invested ourselves very deeply in what it is we're doing. Yeah. And we've had very little return. Yeah. But we haven't needed a return yeah. up until like this year. Yeah, and it's not even return, it's response, like <clears throat> response from people here listening. We feel like it's been a slow climb right. of listeners. <laughs> yep. But now we're actually seeing God leading us to opportunities yeah. that we thought were actually no longer even in the in the, in the dice. peripheral even. <laughs> yeah, it's like we didn't even think that that was even a possibility. Right. And now God has opened a whole new series of doors. And right. boy, that's been exciting. Right, it has been. It's also been exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when we, when we started our photography business exactly at the same time the entire country closed down, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Okay, so let's start on today's discussion. Today we'd like to talk about another of C.S. Lewis's essays, and hopefully people aren't getting tired of us talking about C.S. Lewis. He really is an amazing thinker and writer, especially because he was writing nearly a hundred years ago now. Wow. And he was talking about things that we're seeing today. Yep. So he gives us a lot of insight. So you read this essay without commentary on Simple Gifts, which everyone can listen to through the link in the description. I'm not sure if you can get it online in order for you to read, because I couldn't find it anywhere online to read. Okay. It was in your Christian's, Christian Reflections right, book. Right, Christian Reflections from yeah, it's part of, publisher. Yeah, it's part of his collection of essays called Christian Reflections. Okay, let's do some quick background information. The title, Religion, Reality or Substitute, and it was originally printed in an old publication called World Dominion in September, October edition, somewhere like that. 1941. So that was World War II. Right. And so what was he doing at this time? He was, Lewis was speaking on religious programs via the BBC, and the city was under periodic air raids. And so the people appreciated his broadcast, and the servicemen were listening to him too, and, and they were appreciating. Right. In fact, Air Chief Marshal Sir Donald Hardman said this. He said, the war... The whole life, everything tended to seem pointless. 
We needed, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. Lewis provided just that. It is astounding mm-hmm. that we seem to turn to God most when things are bad. Right. And that's a shame. But I understand it, too. Right. Because I remember my mother, and I was growing up, saying to me, she turned to God when she came to the end of herself, when she realized she had no more resources left to find what it was she was looking for. Mm-hmm. And I think that is endemic to who we are as human beings. Right. As long right. as we can fulfill our needs elsewhere, we won't turn to God. Right. right. And that's a shame. Yeah. So at this particular time, right before this essay was published, Lewis was spending his summer holiday weekends visiting the RAF stations and speaking on his faith. So that's the background. That's where this is coming from. This essay is coming from from him. So let's get to the essay itself. Religion, reality, or substitute opens with this verse from Hebrews 10.1, the law having a shadow of good things to come. All right, so Lewis opens by discussing the idea that the old Jewish priesthood was a mere symbol and that Christianity is the reality which it symbolized. And then he goes on to say that the central region where all doubts about our religion live that things do look so very much as if our whole faith were a substitute for the real well-being we have failed to achieve on earth. So what do you think about this plausibility? Yeah, I think Lewis picks up on something very important here. Mm -hmm. I mean, in an age in which we have psychologized religion, and I think here of someone like Jordan Peterson, who approaches everything through the psychological lens, Much as I approach everything through the philosophical lens, he looks at religion through the psychological and uh, in many ways is picking up on many of the things that someone like Nietzsche or Marx would have said about religion, that it is the opiate of the people. That's what Marx said. Or Nietzsche's view Mm -hmm. that the religious, the Christian in particular, but also the, the Jewish yeah. was a a way of turning weakness into strength. And this is the psychologization that has often been done about the nature of religion. Mm-hmm. And I think Lewis is picking up on this properly and saying something like what he says, that they have a good prima facie case. The theory that our religion is a substitute has a good deal of plausibility. Yeah. Yeah. So Lewis says that the theory that our religion is a substitute, you know, is genuine. Right. Actually, this is interesting because Mm -hmm. it picks up on what we've been saying in our series on the JEDP, the idea that you can weave a very compelling intellectual explanation of all of these things that can still be nevertheless false. Right, right, right. So Lewis goes on to sort of define substitutes, right? He says, one could recognize a substitute readily by mere inspection, but the substitute would betray itself by mere taste. Right. He says, what made it seem so likely that religion was a substitute was not any general philosophical argument about the existence of God, but rather the experienced fact that for the most of us at most times— The spiritual life tasted so thin or insipid compared with the natural, and I thought that was just what a substitute might be expected to taste like. So what was his conclusion then, John? Well, I think it's important here that Lewis is saying sometimes 
what we experience may be inadequate mm-hmm. to the reality because if we understand the nature of reality as being the supernatural, it's not something we've experienced. Exactly. And therefore, it's beyond experience. And what we experience may not be the best index for the nature of reality itself. Right. right. And that experience itself can lead us astray. Right. If we trust it too much. Right, exactly. So he says, but after reflection, I discovered that this was not only not an obvious truth, but was even contradicted by some of my own experience. Mm-hmm. So then he goes on to tell the story about two boys who would steal their father's cigarettes. Right. And, and these two boys, it's kind of fun. Because yeah. you and I have studied the life of C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And we've read Surprised by Joy and some of the other biographies of C.S. Lewis. And we understand the closeness between he and his brother, his brother right. Warney. Right. And that's who he's talking about here with these two boys, yeah. of course. <laughs> so he says that when their father's cigarette stock got low enough for their father to notice them gone, they would have to substitute his cigars. Right. And then he says, the one boy would say to the other, I'm afraid we'll have to put up with cigars today. And the brother would reply, well, I suppose a cigar is better than nothing. The point is that at that young age with an immature palate, the boys thought that a cigar was an inferior substitute for cigarettes. Right? Right. Lewis ends with the moral that one of these boys has been permanently punished by a lifelong inability to appreciate cigars. And that's himself, of course. Right, right, right. So I guess this isn't the greatest analogy in today's anti-smoking world, right? But <laughs> you can true. you can apply it to anything he does too. Anything we sneaked as children or we did as children then had to substitute at some point. But our minds were so settled on our original experience. Right. Yeah. But he does offer a better non-habit-forming vice, as Mm -hmm. an example. He said that when he was a child, he would listen to orchestral pieces on old recordings, and they would only provide that single, as he says, undifferentiated sound. And I really like this example. Mm -hmm. I do, too. Because it provides that notion of something that you get used to thinking, ah, this is really fantastic. I love hearing this because it's giving you a very particular experience and you don't recognize that the experience that you're getting, however good it may be, Mm -hmm. is actually not as good as the reality that lies behind it, but you're totally incapable of recognizing. And and then he he went to see a live orchestra and he was disappointed because that single sound experience wasn't there. Right. And he even said that he felt the live orchestra wasn't the real thing. In his case, the recording was the real thing in his mind while the orchestra was the substitute. Though, you know, it was in reality, it was the other way around. Yeah. And I, Mm -hmm. I identify with this so much Yeah, because I had many similar experiences in my own life, Mm -hmm. similar things that you think, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. And then when you come to recognize that that thing that you're experiencing, you're going to measure everything else by. Yeah. And that reality is actually not as good as something else that you thought was less than it. No, you're right. You're exactly right. And then you go to the next example he uses, which is a different kind of example. This is when Lewis transitions into learning that the real thing is better than the substitute. Right. He says, 
in this case, that it was during wartime rationing where he had to eat margarine instead of butter. Right. And for the first week, he would say, oh, it's just as good as the real thing. But by the end, he didn't want any more margarine ever again. <laughs> and the point was that the first taste of margarine didn't immediately show itself different than the real thing. Right. It was only after some time that he realized. Right. So the first example, it's like he never really realized the difference. Right. The second example, it took some time and then he realized after right. experience. And then his next example, of course, he rises to true profundity, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, now uh, he talks about Milton and Paradise uh, Lost. Yeah, well, yeah, for you. <laughs> <laughs> he finally makes it to the real yeah. and true reality behind everything. But But this second example here about the margarine and the butter. This is right. what I've come to in my life. I think right now over the years, I've settled for secular knowledge. It doesn't begin with God. So while I don't deny there's much that you can garner from what's been learned in science and philosophy and all of those areas, I've come to see of late that all of it is actually manoral recording substitute for the awesome, eternal, and asymptotic live orchestral knowledge. Ooh, wow. I like that. That comes from beginning with the words. I in am the, impressed. Yeah. That comes from the beginning with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's. Yeah. And I think that's true. I think it's easy for us in this secular society in which we have adopted the Hegelian view that there is no such thing as the transcendent to assume that anything that hints of the transcendent must be simply a substitute for the reality that we have now. Right. This is endemic and in many ways is completely following through on all the things we've been talking about this season of the Christian Atheist. Wait. So maybe it's emblematic that mm -hmm. here, what is this? Now we're in October. October. We're moving towards a, a summary of where we've come in this season for we're recognizing that what ultimately the truth boils down to is ignoring the substitute that the Hegelian society has given us right. for truth. Right, right. Because it's a lie. It's mm -hmm. just not the truth. It is a pale shadow of the truth. Mm -hmm. And where do we find the truth? We find it in the revelation and the truth of God in his scriptures, in what he's revealed to us. In all of the ways in which he talks to us, that's where the reality lies. And right, too right. often we get caught up in the substitute that is this rationalized view of the world that is inadequate to it. Yeah, yeah. He says we can't use our own experience as the test of which is the real thing and which is the substitute because the same as he puts it, sensations will accompany both. Right. Yeah, and he makes a really good point. I'm not going to try to anticipate where you're going with this, mm -hmm. but this becomes very important as we move forward. Yeah, right? Okay, yeah. so I'll shut up. <laughs> you're fine. So he returns to the bad boys who were pinching their father's cigarettes and felt that on days when they were forced to pinch his cigars, instead, they were smoking the substitute of the cigarettes, and he lays out the ways that the boys could have discovered which is which. Mm-hmm. And this is important. Yeah. Yeah. One was ask a grown-up, <laughs> which is turning to an authority. Right. 
The second way was instead of stealing, go out and buy their own smokes, which would have showed them that cigars are costlier, which is using their reason. reason, right? Right. And then the third way was waiting through obedience, honesty, and truthfulness to they were of age to smoke, then experience the difference themselves. And that would be the experience experience through maturity. Right. Yeah. So Lewis then begins to discuss faith after laying the, uh, what, what would you say, the groundwork of the essay. He says that faith looks so like praising an intention to believe what you want to believe in the face of evidence to the contrary. So the the critics like to say that the difficulty in continuing in faith is an intellectual difficulty, but Lewis says the contrary, right? I mean, he makes the point that a change of seeing can cause any of us to decrease in faith just for a moment. Right. Yeah. Sometimes that moment can be years like you, 25 years, Yep. but they're pretty much just irrational fluctuations in belief. That's what he says. Okay. So I wanted to back up and just bring another example in that he uses that I find fascinating. He says, but enough of my own experiences. I will turn to a better man, to Milton, and to that scene which I used to think the most grotesque, but now think one of the most profound in Paradise Lost. And actually, when when we talked about Paradise Lost, we had a disagreement on this particular one. Because... You don't understand what it means what to, it be, means a to be a woman. Yes. And so that's why we had the disagreement. <laughs> I mean the part where Eve, a few minutes after creation, sees herself in a pool of water and falls in love with her own reflection. Then God makes her look up and she sees Adam. But the interesting point is that the first sight of Adam is a disappointment. He is a much less immediately attractive object than herself. Being divinely guided, Eve gets over this difficult pons asinorum, that is, the point at which many learners fail, and lives to learn that being in love with Adam is more inexhaustible, more fruitful, and even more fun than being in love with herself. And I think that there's a lesson there in the notion of self-love, in the notion of awaking, as Adam talked about in Paradise Lost, of awaking to know himself and recognizing that he doesn't even really know himself properly until he finds himself in his other, in Eve. And the same point I think Lewis is making here for Eve, that Eve finds her true value in Adam. And that is the point of Milton's piece here. And whether he's right or wrong on female psychology, I do like the idea that we find ourselves truly in the other person. We find our value in the other person. And our love for ourselves is a mere substitute for the reality that is ourself together. Our self is one flesh, hand in hand. And I love that. And yeah, I know I'm sorry you do. I... You don't have to be sorry. I think that's okay. good. Okay. So, picking up with what Lewis actually says here, he says this From this, I want to draw the following conclusion Introspection is of no use at all in deciding which of two experiences is a substitute or a second best. At a certain stage, 
all those sensations which we should expect to find accompanying the proper satisfaction of a fundamental need will actually accompany the substitute and vice versa. And I want to insist that if we are once convinced of this principle, we should hold it quite unflinchingly from this moment to the end of our lives. When a witness has once proved unreliable, turn him out of the court. If our criterion between a real and a substituted satisfaction must be sought somewhere else, then in God's name, seek it somewhere else. So the idea is mere experience is not going to provide the criteria by which we can decide this question. Mm -hmm. And that's my point up to here. So I'm done. <laughs> okay. So that kind of takes us to the most important part of this essay, his analogy, which is really interesting, learning to swim or learning to climb. He says about how these activities look dangerous to you when you're just starting out. What did you just say in that last part? Okay. So Lewis says, authority, reason, experience. On these three, mixed in varying proportions, all our knowledge depends. And then he says, I am only trying to put the whole problem the right way round, to make it clear that the value given to the testimony of any feeling must depend on our whole philosophy, not our whole philosophy on a feeling. Right. That's exactly what he tries to explain here. So your teacher tells you it's safe and you trust your teacher and you might even see that others are swimming or climbing and everything appears safe. And the problem comes when you're rationalizing. Will I be able to go on believing it's safe when I'm standing on the edge of a cliff or when I feel unsupported by the water? Right. So rationalization mm -hmm. is actually the problem right. rather than the solution. Right, right. And in reality, it's your senses and emotions that are the actual attack on your belief. It's mm -hmm. not faith versus reason. It's more like faith versus sight mm -hmm. that, that you're using. Right. I think that's very clear. He makes the point here. The distinction is not between faith and reason, mm -hmm. but between faith and sight. That is between what we experience and faith. Right, right. Then Lewis says something that takes me back to our talk last week on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan is shaved and bounded by what we said was a ball of cords and convoluted knots, and he lies dead, as it seems like the way God is in the academic world or the scientific world or philosophical world today. In this essay, Lewis says what is reflected in Susan and Lucy as they look on Aslan lying there. He, he says, our faith in Christ wavers not so much when real arguments come against it as when it looks improbably, yes. when the whole world takes on that desolate look, yes. which really tells us much more about the state of our passions yes. and even our digestion than about reality. Right. And that's and, what Susie and Lucy looked at as they saw Aslan laying there. Right. And I think that is where our world is today. Mm -hmm. When we as students come into the university today, it's not that we're argued, and actually Lewis makes this point in this essay. Yeah, he yeah. says, look, it's not that the student who comes in as a freshman into Oxford is suddenly reasoned out of their faith. 
Yeah. No, it's that they are confronted with a world that does not believe, and they themselves are more deeply and profoundly influenced by their not rational experience, but rather by their feelings of the world that they're experiencing. And that's what drives them away from the faith far more than any rational exactly. explanation does. And that's certainly true. Mm-hmm. It's certainly true. So what Lewis says next is something that struck you as I remember. He says, when we exhort people to faith as a virtue, to the settled intention of continuing to believe certain things, we are not exhorting them to fight against reason. The intention of continuing to believe is required because though reason is divine, human reasoners are not. Right. And this is that fundamental limitation that we confront over and over and over again (laughs) in the Christian atheists. We are not God. And when we confuse ourselves for God, we confuse ourselves deeply and profoundly. Right, right. He says that reason may win truth. Without faith, she will retain them just so long as Satan pleases. There is nothing we cannot be made to believe or disbelieve. Yeah, and that is actually a profound point. We human beings can convince ourselves of almost anything Mm -hmm. if we are willing to entertain it as a possibility in our minds. As Satan said, the mind is its own place. And if we refuse to give to God, to reality, the right to correct our minds, we can believe anything. Well, in Milton, he said, the mind is its own place. But in the Bible, he says, hath God really said? Hath God said? Yeah, hath God said. Yes. Right, so Satan says, hath God said? And that opens the mind to the possibilities beyond what God hath said. It's like, wait a second, if you can deny that, You can develop anything else you want. It opens the imagination to create a world that is a substitute for God's world, for reality itself. And the whole point of this essay is reality is what must correct our views, not the other way around. And we don't always have the best access to what reality is. If it's just a matter of our choosing one experience over another. Yeah. So Lewis goes on to say, kind of closes the essay. He says, the power to go on believing not in the teeth of reason, but in the teeth of lust and terror and jealousy and boredom and indifference, that which reason, authority, or experience, or all three have once delivered to us for truth. So Lewis actually seems to think that faith is the ability to continue to hold on to a truth Mm -hmm. that once we've managed to grasp, and that is the nature of faith. Yeah. And I find that interesting. I do think that there is an element of faith that manages to hold on to something even in the face of evidence to the contrary because you were convinced of it first. And that evidence then is something that we must be willing to look at and say, yes, but is this really true? And God asks us to hold on to the reality, even in the face of something that seems to contradict it. 
Right. And the point I think Lewis is making in this essay is that very seldom is it reason that is contradicting our faith. It is more often the case that what is truly contradicting our faith is the emotions and the immediate evidence of the reality we're living in that is false. Right. And we have to be willing to hold on even in the face of that. Right, right. He says at the very end of the essay, he says he ends with a series of questions. For I'm not sure after all whether one of the causes of our weak faith is not a secret wish that our faith should not be very strong. Is there some reservation in our minds, some fear of what it might be like if our religion became quite real? I hope not. God help us all and forgive us. And that's how he ends it. Yeah, that's how he ends it. And it is a probing question Mm -hmm. because it makes us think, do we really want this to be real? Yeah. And if it's real, then we better do something about it in our lives. And that reminds me of Jordan Peterson. (laughs) Jordan Peterson makes the point that if this is really the case, if we're really going to believe it, how is that going to affect our reality, what we actually do. And that question, I think, when Jordan Peterson asked it, really profoundly affected me. It's like, how much do I really believe? And the only way to measure it is, how am I acting? If I really believe there is a God, if I really believe that Jesus died to save the world, how is that being reflected in my actions each and every day? Okay, so I guess that's it for the week, huh? You have anything else to say, John? No, uncharacteristically, I'm rather quiet tonight. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, how's your Paradise Lost book coming along? Ooh, that's exciting. I'm actually to the point now of having completed, I think, the afterword and am drafting the preface. And I'm excited about where it's going, and I think this week we'll complete it and I'll hand it over to you for publication. And then you'll be doing the after the afterward? The after afterward, yes. <laughs> and the pre-preface, right? <laughs> I can see that for some reason. <laughs> okay, so what's on the Christian Atheist menu for Monday? Wow, I have no idea. I thought maybe I could do a Christian Atheist on this essay, but I'm not sure I'm up to that. We'll see. <laughs> So don't forget, if you like to listen to Religion, Reality, or Substitute by C.S. Lewis, the links will be in the description, mostly to John reading it without commentary on our Simple Gifts podcast, because I don't think we can find the text apart oh, yeah, apart from being in this book. And if you're listening on YouTube, please consider subscribing, and we would really appreciate that. And if you're interested in knowing more about the Christian Atheist, be sure to check out the link to John's book in the description, Through the Looking Glass, The Imploding of an Atheist Professor's Worldview. As always, if you have the means, buy us a cup of coffee. There's a link to that in the description as well. And we thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us, and we appreciate you hanging in there. And we hope you have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you next week. I love you, my dear. I love you too, Johnny. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. 
I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.